Are you ready? Father, we come before you, we ask you to remove all things, purge our thinking, so that we can consume the only thing that matters. I pray tonight that we would add to our faith virtue, and to virtue temperance, and to temperance knowledge. I pray tonight, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to captivate every thought that comes through our mind. Clear our spirits, clean our hearts, refresh us. Forgive us, Lord, of all things that interrupt our thinking and our heart towards you. Clean our hearts, Lord, purge us, Lord, from the elements of our day and our week. I pray for all the people tonight that are hearing this, that they're they're burdened with stress and they're burdened, Lord, with the cares of this life. I pray, Lord, right now, lift that burden And allow there to be access and room for your word to be planted inside of their lives. In Jesus' name, all the people said in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. I hope that you have your Bibles. I'm in the middle of a three-part series called The Law. We spoke last week about some of the misnomers of, of Christianity and The reason why we have to describe Christianity or religion is because this massive subject of the law uh, has great bearing on our Christian walk with God. I will present to you, for you, um, several aspects of law. But I want to begin tonight with James chapter 2 and... I'm going to read just a little bit of James chapter 2. And verse number 2, I'll, I'll read it in a more of a, uh, perhaps a, 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 a conversational uh, dialogue. Suppose a man comes to your house or a place where you're meeting. He's wearing a nice watch, fine clothes. And then a poor man with shabby clothes, he comes in. If you pay special attention or if you're giving attention to this man who obviously has more, and you say, hey, why don't you sit in a good seat? But the poor man, you pay no attention to. You tell him, sit on the floor. There's a problem right there with you, but but this, this is very... Uh, we've been very common because we have multiple chairs, but there may have not been places to sit. So basically, we're just talking about preferential treatment based upon an outward appearance. Didn't you discriminate among yourselves? You come judges with evil thoughts. And then James says, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in the faith. Now, let me just pause and just say this to you. There's a reason why people with a lot of money have a tough time with their walk with God. Because the poor need God. Most of our greatest, in fact, I'll just say, the greatest revivals are not in the countries that... um, that have the austerity measures. They're not in the countries that have the great wealth. We, we struggle reaching wealthy nations. Um, e- even in the last century, uh, the Ethiopian revival, people were poor. They had very little. Because when you have things, you have options. You, you don't need God as much. Now, I'm not... I'm I'm not that old, but my mom and dad, we didn't have any money. We prayed when we were sick because we didn't have just an access to a hospital. We didn't go to the hospital. Um, We didn't have the money for medications. And my mother would fix food for Dr. Mogerman from from time to time. And every once in a while, maybe every few years, when we were real ill, she'd call him and he would see us after hours. When you don't have the option, you pray differently. When you don't have options, you think differently. When you do have options, your first response is not Jesus. 
I want that to sink into us. It's um, and so what happens is that is that God looks for people, and this is a scripture: those who are poor in the eyes of the world, they're rich in faith, inherit the kingdom. Why is that? Because that's what they have. They don't have. 401ks, and I'm not against 401ks. They don't have retirement plans or pension plans or me- medical plans. They have God, and they lean upon him. So this is not a scripture to denounce um, any prosperity of, of, of material assets. But the problem was that James is pointing out the natural instinct to prefer someone because of something they have. I just, I know you know this, but I, I want to make sure that you get this. What people have is not who they are. That, that's, not, that's not what defines them. There is a huge generation, it's, it's a massive movement, that feel like they're defined by what they have. You are not defined by what you have. Do not allow people to define you and don't define yourself by what you have. But, verse 6, but you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich? They're exploiting you. They're, they're taking to court. They're, are they not the ones standing there and slandering you and saying things? So, just because they have something. In fact, in this particular scripture, James is pointing out the infractions of those who had much that you prefer. Now, now I get to this verse 8, which, which really is the verse I wanted to, to showcase because I love this adjective. If you really keep the, the royal law, and the King James also calls it the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. There is a royal law. Verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law. Now now we're talking about the law of the Old Testament law. But stumbles at one point. If you mess up one time, you're guilty of committing a sin against all of it. That's why they, they, they could not keep all the law of Moses because if they messed up one part of it, they, they destroyed themselves. They, 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 they sinned against all. For, for, this is what the Bible says. For he who said, do not commit adultery, do not murder. If, you didn't commit adultery, but if you did something else, you, you're, you become a lawbreaker of the whole. So, as I, as I walk through this, I, I just want you to see, even in this chapter, there are two distinctions of the law. There's a royal law, and then there's this law of the Old Testament that James is, is speaking of. And, and he's obviously writing to Jewish people who have this ingrained in their lives. All right. So within this arena lies uh, this myriad of pitfalls, and, and I'm going to detail just a few for understanding. Uh, first, I have to just talk a little bit about historical revisionist. I'm not talking about American uh, historical revisionist, although they exist. History will be written now through the eyes of a philosophy. So our, the, the history books that are coming out now are not true history books of facts. They're, they're, they're history through the eyes of what perhaps uh, should be. Um, uh, we used to be able to rely upon historians because they were apolitical. But now all history books are being written from a standpoint of some philosophical or worldview, the lens of a worldview. But the, there is historical revisionist in, in another era, uh, area, and that is, that is in, in the way that the scripture is, has been written. We would, we would term that, if you want to write this little word down, it's called cultural relativity. And this is a very dangerous thing. Cultural relativity is a very dangerous thing because basically what that would do, in, if it's used incorrectly, is to remove the tenets of the scripture because it was written to a different culture or in a different time, which it was. 
but it's still applicable to our lives today. So that means that people could say, well, that wasn't written to me. That wasn't written to the American society. So I don't have to listen to that. Cultural relativity has a, there's a, this, it's a big trap. You have to be very, very careful. Now, the modern age of Christians is broken up into three parts. This is my thought, and, and, and I, I, I would welcome uh, your thought if, 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 you, if you lean this direction. But as I started looking through uh, the first century church and then went through those 300 years before they really even had a building, um, they had the temple at the start, and then they had house to house. They met. That's Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 5. Um, when Jerusalem was was basically uh, destroyed, uh, when 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 Nero burned uh, uh, most of his own city and then blamed the Christians, and when the church fell into the dark ages and then climbed out, so when serfdom was was large and in charge, and 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 if you track through the historical account. Finally, have a few things that, that took place, and, and I'll, I'll talk about them in a moment. But but Christianity, it, it through the ages of time, Bill and Angie Treadway did a wonderful session here, and you, if you look it up online, they did a great session about about Christianity through the ages. There's always been uh, there's always been a, a witness throughout every age. But I'm going to just present to you. I'm, I'm moving past the first thousand eighteen hundred years, and I'm. I'm I'm, I'm getting to a place where we finally find uh, the term modern. Now, now, when you think of modern, you're probably thinking of the year 2000s. But, but in the industrial age and even before that, there was modernism that took place. A lot of modern things. And, um, um, uh, just the way that a gun was created and, and, and the moving away from the powdered musket, uh, the way a, the, the combustible engines and, and, um, and Eli Whitney and, and, uh, and the Gutenberg press, um, these things started to, to create modernism. So modernism did not begin with the advent of the computer. It was far before that. Are we okay tonight? Did you, did you know that you were coming to class? Okay, it's glass. All right. So three areas of modern Christianity. The first one, it was a spirit revival. And, and tracking that, probably um, in the late 1800s, there's a spirit revival. And it's going to really just flourish throughout the United States, in, in Europe too. Um. As it regards the United States, California had had a massive spirit revival. We and if and you may some of you may have not have known that, but there was a church called the Azusa Street Church, and the Azusa Street Church had had a, had it was like a birthplace of explosion of apostolic Holy Ghost revival, and the the members of that church were mostly teenagers, and there's a book called The Stories They Told, and in that book. Those teenagers would pray for people. They were healed. There were there were there were hospital beds out laying out on the street. There were crutches and canes laying out on the street. In 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 the late eighteen hundreds, the there was there was we were just moving away from from the old path of medicines. Um, the, the the original medicines were in the United States were were not very good. Uh, there was a thing called bleeding. If you had an infection, they cut a, a, a blood vessel open, and and George Washington they did this to him because he. He had infection, so they would they would let your blood leak out, thinking that that was going to clear the infection. This was not good. In fact, this is this was this was the opposite of what you should have been doing. But but there was not in, in the late 1800s. One of the main infections in America were, were were the dental infections because because they didn't people didn't have good dental hygienists and and they didn't take care of their teeth. And so uh, this was written that people would come. They had massive infections in their in their face and their body from horrible. Uh, horrible infections in their teeth. And, and one of those young people in that Azusa Street would put their finger in the mouth of that open cavity and a tooth would grow back. It was amazing stuff that happened in Azusa Street. And uh, William Seymour, he was an African American pastor and he had a, instead of for a pulpit like this, he had a, he had a crate. It was a, it was a, um, uh, like a Coca Cola crate 
turned sideways and he would kneel down and stick his head inside of that crate and he would pray until the Lord, they would be singing, he would pray until the Lord gave him the word. Then he'd get up and start preaching. And many people received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Uh, it was, it was a massive thing, the very early 1900s, massive revival. And it spread throughout all of the United States. In 1917, the took Topeka, Kansas revival exploded just the same way. It was, it was an incredible thing, and it just moved through the United States. In fact, that revival actually was sustaining many of our soldiers. There's evidence and there's reports of both world wars um, that, that, our, that, our, that our men uh, had already experienced, our young boys already experienced um, uh, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now this is these are broad this is a broad brush. Lord knows I can't get down into all of the things that I that I have studied. I'm just giving you three very broad umbrellas. And then there's this spirit acceptance. Now there is a there's a decay in this in this era, the seventies and the ninth through the nineties, there's a decay. So we've lost the purity. Now part of that problem is part of that problem is that the greatest generation has come back home and there's a disruption in the family unit. And mothers and wives have learned how to survive without their husbands at factories and there's a whole bunch of things that 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 attend to this acceptance. Now the acceptance is not always good. Um, because it's not the same as a revival. And, and so, uh, other things were taking place. Um, what the early Pentecostals had in the early 1900s and the late 1800s and 1900s was that they, they had exclusivity, not because they wanted to keep speaking in tongues to themselves, but no one else spoke in tongues, and, and they were mocked. And, and they were made fun of, and they were called names. And, and, but, but about the 1970s, it, it, somewhere in there, the charismatic movement started to flourish, and, and now speaking in tongues became, um, uh, became accepted until finally it became culturally cachet, until men, crazy, uh, crazy men who, who, who graced television sets decided they could teach people how to speak in tongues. And this is actually in, in record. You, you can see this. I, I wish you wouldn't, but there's people who acted like they could teach someone to speak in tongues. This is not of God. It's just a, it's a, it's a blabber. Um, uh, but, but this acceptance became wide and varied. And, and, uh, it was almost as if it was, it was an allowance. You have your religion and I accept that and I have mine. But what we're, what we were looking at was the, are you still with me? <laughs> what we were looking at was the, was the absence of absolutes. So absolutism was, was, was being replaced with, with subjectivism. I'm, I'm going quickly, and, and I, I hope you haven't already checked out. But if you do, just act like you're still in. And then finally, you, you have this, this, this thing that we're dealing with today, it's, and I call it personalized theology. Now these are my terms. Uh, no one, I didn't read these things in, in any book. Personalized theology. And, and they, they began somewhere approximately 2009 to the present. Now, I have some, those dates for a reason, but I can't divulge those dates because it would take too long. But this personalized theology means that I have my religion. This is my experience. And we, we started to measure our Christianity by our personal experiences and not biblical experiences. And so now you see this in full display today as, as people declare truth, not as a truth, but their truth, as if it's personalized. Their truth is a personalized truth. In fact, if, if you say this is my truth and that's your truth, that means there's no truth because truth is not a subjective term. It's, it's a truth. It's the truth. It's, it's, it's an absolute truth. Our college students are dealing with professors that have no idea of abs, they do not believe in absolutes. Um, and of course, it's, they're absolutely against absolutes, which is, of course, um, uh, circular reasoning, and, and 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 it's nonsense. But this is what's happened in Christianity. Now, now, I'm, I'm weaving this around the law. There's there's a law because by the time you get to the last segment of that, you have removed the boundaries. Remember what we talked about last week? Law meant boundaries and limitations. It meant constraint. And 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 because. We've landed in this realm, there's a battle taking place, and this battle is a fierce battle now. And the battle is where we're at now. Now, this is our generation, and if you're living, you're in this generation. Here's the battle for boundaries, and I'll, I'll, I'm only going to present 
two of them, so I won't exhaust it. The boundaries of language and conduct. There's a huge battle for boundaries. And that means lines that denote ownership. Uh, lines that, that denote um, uh, limitations. And the two great ones that I see are, the, are those that surround language and conduct. And I'll give you six of those, of those battles that are taking place. Number one is appropriate relationships. So who gets determined what is an appropriate relationship? If there's no law, if you remove the law, or if you have personalized theology... If, it's, if your religion or your experience with God is based upon how you feel, then you get to set your own boundary. And when you set your own boundary, then you've got to live within those boundaries unless you want to remove, want to change those, those limitations. But if you do that, what happens is it's chaos. Remember how we talked about the law, uh, and, 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 and the highway of the Autobahn, that 12 mile stretch where there's no speed limit. And, and, and when people have a car accident, most of them die because they're going 150 clicks an hour. This particular, uh, thought here is that relationships have to have a boundary and there is there is a natural law and a boundary that needs to be uh, rehearsed in our lives there are some things that are appropriate and some things that are not appropriate and so there's a battle for what is appropriate now now we're finding out that in fact even though this seems to be an open society, with, when, when, when marriage is not a, it's not a requirement and, and it's not esteemed, but we're finding out that, that people are being caught in, in inappropriate relationships. And there is an inappropriate relationship. Now, I don't know, you, you probably wouldn't remember the name Gary Hart, but Gary Hart could have become the president. He was very, he was a magnanimous man. He, he was a man who had a lot going for him. He, he, was, he was skilled. He was, very, he was a very powerful politician. He was well-liked. He was a good-looking guy. But he had an inappropriate relationship. And it ruined his chances to become the president. Years and years and years later, a politician said, I don't believe that infidelity should have anything to do with our, with our political system. And just because a person... Um, uh, just because a, a person has an affair does not mean that they're, they're not qualified for political office. Well, of course, I disagree with that because a man who will cheat on his wife will cheat on you. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so uh, appropriate relationships are critical. But instead of developing appropriate relationships, what we've done is we've given the nine-year-old a condom. What you've just done is you've removed the boundary and you've implanted the idea in that young boy that it's appropriate and that we assume that you're going to be active or appropriate. So because we've removed the boundaries of uh, these boundaries, there, there's this battle over what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Number two is distinctive attire. Distinctive attire. Um, I was reading uh, the the massive, and, and they call it a resurgence, of the drag queens. Men who dress up like women. And, and with, the, with the makeup artists today, it's very, very difficult uh, to... Uh, to to determine if this is a man or a woman, uh, there there of course if, if you've paid attention in the news, there's a wrestler um, that he decided to be a, a girl, and and he has been beating. He, he decided I am now going to be a girl, and uh, and play in the and and compete in the women's wrestling. He's he's beating all the girls. Uh, oh, a swimmer. He's out swimming all the girls. He says he's a, he's a female now. And so we have identity. It didn't start there. It started with attire. It started with attire. It started with what is put on and what's not put on. And I don't care if the American church, I don't, listen, I know, I already know where I'm at. I know that somewhere somebody is going to, they're not going to like what I'm about to say. 
But it's okay. I, I th- this, the, the problem is, we beat up, people have been beating up these outward attire so long, diluting them until finally it leads us into a way where there is no separation of, of the genders. And so the whole approach of distinctive attire, number one, is always modesty. Number two is always the distinction of a man or a woman. If you, have, if you wonder about that, you need to go look at Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. You should write that down, 22, verse 5. Because there are some things in the Old Testament that we need to learn. Now, in the law, there is an abomination to men. And that abomination to men is... If it's an abomination to men, it means that it's for that moment... And that it lives and dies in that moment. Now it can stretch forward into the next dispensation or generation. But if it's an abomination to God, there are no lines of dispensation. So anything that's an abomination to God in the Old Testament is still abomination to God in the New Testament and today. Are you, are you still here with me now? You're going to, you might have to go back and listen to this whole thing and get your Bible out. And then, and then, and then, then you can talk back to me while, while you're listening. So there's a battle on distinctives in attire. Especially, not, not just women, but especially young men. What shall they wear? So now, we are not, today we are, we are, we, we, we've, we've pushed these boundaries so far, removed all the lines. So now, we are encouraging our young boys in our public school systems to wear things that they know would be uh, attributed to a young girl. And if you don't think that, that that's a new, you think this is okay, just let the next preacher come up and, and, and let him wear some high heels here. How would you like that? A skirt and a pantyhose and high heels. I don't know why I threw the pantyhose in. Just I don't know if anyone wears those. I, I don't even think about that stuff. But just You would think that's a little odd. In fact, you would say, well, that's inappropriate for the church. In fact, you'd probably say that's inappropriate for the mall. It's inappropriate for... Why would you think that? Why would you think that a man that wears a skirt, high heels, why would you think that? Now, I don't, I think the industry knows that there's a difference, but we're being, the boundaries are being pushed. I mean, you, if you, if you thought that that was your shirt, shirt, if you thought, hey, this is a cool shirt, I want to wear it, all you have to do is put the shirt on, it might even fit you in the shoulders and the arms, but just go to button it. Because if it's a woman's shirt, the buttons are on the other side. Did you know that? Did you know that, Connor? How did you know that? All right. Because you're a smart guy, that's why. Because you're intellectual. You're a fashion guru. That's why. Fashionado. The indi- There's a battle... And there's a law, ladies and gentlemen, and there is an internal law. Now, I, I've taught this before. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were naked and they were not ashamed. But when they sinned, they hid themselves. And God said, why are you hiding? Because they're naked. And God said, "Why? who told you you were naked? And what happened was when they sinned, when they had disobedience, they realized who they were. The moment disobedience came in, a conscience awoke. You have a conscience. It's God's internal mechanism to tell you that's wrong. But the Bible says in the last days, their conscience will be seared as with a hot iron. That means people will lose right and wrong. And in fact, there's two ways you can lose right and wrong. The first way is that you cross the boundary so many times, you now have no moral compass and you burn out your conscience. The other way is because you didn't love the truth. And God sent you a strong delusion that you would believe a lie. And the truth or a lie, if they come from God, they feel the same. Uh Uh-oh. And as one man said, you don't get to pick your delusion Because you did what? You didn't love the truth. You have to adhere to a law. Amen. Finally, there's the battle of boundaries of language, conduct, and its property. Uh, uh, I'm not talking about the asset of land. I'm talking about ownership. 
what belongs to someone and what, uh, it could be land, but what, what belongs to someone, what doesn't belong to them? Ownership. I have a right to your things. Why? Because I'm a human being. That's wrong. No one has a right to your things. So what's happening right now, there's a battle over the boundary of a right to your things. Now this is not, we're seeing it more and more because there's more ways to see this. But this has been going on for thousands of years. Lands conquered. Um, Personal, the personal boundary, the personal language and conduct. I was talking with a pastor uh, this early this week, and he was talking about his daughter's friend, and um, his daughter brought her to church. She's, she she loved the church, but she changed her pronoun to they uh, instead of she. It had to be they, and so this was very very difficult for for all of the friends to to um, uh, to kind of implement. And, and and instead of saying she came, they came. Uh, it, 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 it didn't make sense to them. It, it, it defies, uh, changing the pronoun defies the, the, uh, the, the English plurality. Uh, they is a plural. Uh, she is a singular. Uh, he is a singular. Uh, them is a plural. And so, it, 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 these, this nonsense, there's a battle of language, a personal, there's, there's the personal boundaries, our boundaries, what we will and will not do. It's, it's not just tattooing, it's burning. It, it's, it's burning imprint designs on the human body. It's, it's taken the human body and make it a canvas and, of expression, all kinds of odd expressions. And, and, and there's, a, there's a language. What's appropriate? What's not appropriate? What is appropriate? I, I ask you, what do you think is appropriate for a, for, a, for a man of God to do to his own body? What do you think is appropriate? There's a host of people who are waiting for preachers and pastors and teachers to get up and give people a list of things to do and not to do. And the reason why is because they don't spend any time in prayer and the word, and so they have no law in them. They, they, have, they have no law of God, no, no love of God. <laughs> There's no constraint in them. And so they'll live by a certain code. Now some churches and some pastors enjoy that because it gives them control. An ultimate dictatorship, authoritarian rule. If you didn't know this or not, you're not in that realm. I'm not the sheriff of Nottingham running around trying to find out what you did wrong, what you watched, what you said. But I'm not dumb either. (laughs) So I I would say it's important for you to live as unto God, not unto men. But if you live unto God, that's a higher law. Because you can please men and not please God. If you please God, it doesn't matter if you please men. Well, so this is a person. There's a person, and then and then number five is this is particularly found in language. It's it's I'll I'll say I'm calling it the big word manners. And, and manners is not just please and thank you. Manners is far beyond please and thank you. I call it the recognition of age and position. It's the recognition of age and position. Uh, children did not start this. Men and women started this. It's, 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 it's a boundary line. What you will and will not say to your spouse, to your mother, to, to, your, to your wife. When Jesus said, Mary said to him, Jesus, they have no wine. Jesus replied, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. He didn't say woman like, like someone might say that today. That was in term of endearment. It meant dear mother. He wasn't scolding his mother. He was just saying, mother, dear mother, uh, what, my not, this is not the time. But of course he, of course he acquiesced. So there's, there's positions. Now we're not, the reason why children are not living by a language law is because parents are not living by, men and women are not living by language law. We're violating we're violating a boundary that used to exist and does not exist now. And some of it's recognition of age. The Bible talks about this. It talks about the esteem and respect of older people. Um, there's also positions that we ought to respect. You may, not, you may not like the person who holds the position, but they still hold the position. And it wouldn't matter... 
But now, what we've diluted that. And so, when you start to dilute, no wonder why we have no spiritual authority happening in the church and no one recognizes spiritual authority because we've been diluting that for a long time. So, this is the battleground for language, how we speak. Yes, sir, thank you. I, I know these are simple things, but if you don't get the simple things and you, when, when you need to have recognition, I, I, let me just share with you, this has happened to me three or four times in the course of just, in fact, the entirety of my pastorate here. Someone comes from another church and they're Pentecostal. They come in and they call me Brother Harpole or they call me Pastor. And immediately I got it. I know who they are. I, I, I've got that and I love that. But they're, every time that they called me Brother, every time, it came to be that they, they had great disrespect for the ministry. Now I do not know why that is, but when they saw me, hi brother, thank you brother, it was, it was, I, I was a little ignorant of this, but what they were doing was bringing me down to their level so that I did not have spiritual authority over them. I just responded, it's nice to see you, brother, that was nice, brother. Well, why, why would that be? There's this internal mechanism to reduce the authority down to a commonality. I was, I was, I, I told my sons, you have a boss. That's your authority. You make them happy. They're paying you. You don't come in with an attitude. They are in charge. Even if you know more than them, it doesn't matter. They're in charge. You respect them. <laughs> we, we're losing this, and if we don't have this here. See, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It ought to be exemplified here. If we can't do it here, we're not going to do it anywhere else. Definitions, finally, there's a battle. Language and conduct over definitions. And definitions are being changed every day. You're in the holiday season where we used to sing the words happy and gay. That's in our Christmas carols, happy and gay. You've never sang happy and gay? When, when, when God flooded the earth and wiped out humanity, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. God came back and said, listen, I'm, I'm going to give you a sign in the sky. I won't destroy this earth with, with water again. And my sign, my covenant will be a rainbow. The rainbow and the word gay belongs to the church. Did you know that? But these things have been stolen from us. The definitions have been changed. Mm-hmm. Mm. And why is that? Because we have removed the boundaries and the law has been removed or redefined. Let me just share with you. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to get to this law and I'm, I'm going to run out of time. But, <clears throat> but I, let me get to this, the entry. Uh, once again, this is my life experiences. And I teach this from the scripture. Of course, I've seen this in the scripture hundreds and hundreds of times. The, the people at one point, they wanted, to, they wanted to announce that they were doing right. And so, that's the Old Testament. And they, so they said, the temple of the Lord is here. The temple of the Lord is here. They were declaring that God was in their, uh, their construction. This was a lie. He was not there. So they, they, they declared that he was there. And they said it over and over again. There's a few entries into religious practices And there's only one that really matters. Now, I won't exhaust them, but I'll just give you three. There's religion by nostalgia. There have been people who come to church because their parents and grandparents were Pentecostal. Now, they have no association with Pentecost at all. They don't pray. They don't love God. They they love the old songs. They love the nostalgia. They love the feel. Nostalgia. And there's a lot of religion by nostalgia. It's not just Pentecostals. In fact, every denomination, I think, has religion by nostalgia. It's just, it brings back good memories. You know, there's, there are certain smells that you can smell. And if you do, it brings you back to a childhood. Nostalgia. I'm very nostalgic. I'm incredibly, I just get, I get melancholy. Uh, certain song plays at Christmas. There's a certain smell, just that, that Christmas tree, and Tammy is decorating, and it just brings me back to the days before we had kids. <laughs> the glorious, wonderful days. 
<laughs> I, I remember, you know, when we first got the first Kenny G album and we were putting it on and we just put it on repeat and had a little boom box and, and we didn't even have any furniture. We, we No furniture, really. We, but we did have a little Christmas tree that we got uh, on sale and 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 it, even even before that nostalgia just you know coming into a room a place i can smell a candle and i i i just i hear a song by ambrosia am i dating myself and i don't know whatever people don't know nothing and 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 you know i'm like yeah abba man there there it is abba yeah and it, you know just things that bring you back nostalgia it doesn't mean you're involved in what's happening. It's just it's a warm sensation. It's a warm feeling. And then the next entry into religious practices comes by tradition. This is, a, this is one of the afflictions that happened to, to the Jewish community. They, they, had, they had religion really by tradition. But the problem is they, they, they took the tradition and they made it, uh, they made it the law. <laughs> And finally, in Mark chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, and he said this, and I quote, Making the word of God of none effect through your tradition and many such like things do ye. And people have, they come to church because that's just what they do. Well, why do you go to church? Because that's what we do on Sundays. Well, what, what do you, why, do you, why do you go to the restaurant? Because that's just what we do. Well, why do you always... Because it's just tradition. Tradition has, has been the entry for many people. Not heart, not desire. Because the third one is religious practice by obedience. That's where you want to be. An obedience now to what? In, in the New Testament, the Bible says there's this explosion of acceptance of the new birth. And the Bible says that many priests became obedient to the faith. They became obedient to the faith. So obedience is the only way in. Because obedience was the way we got out. You got kicked out by obedience. You're going to be brought in. Uh, kicked out by disobedience. Brought in by obedience. Alright. All of this brings me to. Some different. Um, aspects of law. There's the royal law that I just talked about, and I'll get back to it. But I'll break up the Old Testament into three different laws, the Old Testament laws. The moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law. And I have 15 minutes, and, and, and that's why I've got next week to wrap this up, because we're not going to get through, through all of this. The moral law, and, and I'm going to keep adding to these to this, but I'll give you my initial definition. The moral law controlled individual life. It was God's intent. Um, and you can even add for conduct for living. It was, it, was, it was the individual life, the moral law. Now, these are, once again, we're, we're working with some definitions. In fact, these particular definitions I'm giving right now came from an old book that I found um, in... Um, uh, Leon C, uh, about an hour uh, outside of London in an old bookstore where these books are about five or six hundred years old. And I sat down and found this book and the profundity of, of the writers that dissected the Old Testament at the time, long before America was, uh, became a nation. And they talked, the, the writer talked about the moral law. As I started to look through the Old Testament, I'm discovering his scriptures and, and the power of his scriptures that they used the individual life, the moral law. The next was the civil law. It governed national life. Governmental decrees, communities. It was an order for the community. So civil law would, would, would tell you about uh, if you found a cow, it was on your property, a sheep, and you returned it. It was, there was, there was some civil practices about lawsuits and, and work and debt and, and civil law. We, we have a lot of that today. You've got to be very careful about civil law. Because civil law, if it's not handled correctly, can violate God's moral law. I, I, and I don't want you to all run out of here and start marching in a protest. But I just want you to know, we, we're, we're facing protests against civil or governmental law. 
I believe that anyone can come to new life and anyone is welcome. But what happens when the day comes when to keep our tax-exempt 501c3 status, we must hire someone from the LBGTQ community? Because that's coming. No, we won't do that. We'll be in protest against that. Now, some of you are already conscientious objectors. I know you are. Because you drive over the speed limit. You're objecting against whatever the limit is. How many police officers do I have in here right now? Four? Okay, yes, I see you. All right. The, 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 and, and, and there are moments when we, when we do respect that, a pushback against the law. This is why the civil rights movement would never have happened if the people felt like they could not uh, hold up the moral law. They were holding up moral law and saying, hold on, this is immoral, the way that people are being treated, and they came against the government or civil law. Thus, we had a civil rights movement that, that defied the civil law or the governmental law. And it was appropriate. So, so if it's done correctly, then the civil law always obeys God's higher moral law for the individual. In fact, we would need less law for the community if we had more law for the person. But because the person won't live morally correct before God, we have to institute written laws on a piece of paper with consequences. Y'all getting that? Okay. Now this, this is, this is being rebuffed right now and it's being rebuffed in the church because why? Because people have personalized theology and they think that they can do whatever they want, say whatever they want. Hold on a second. Have any kind of attitude that you want and still go to heaven. Be careful before you think that you can espouse any kind of disposition and still be right with God. Because you might be following a civil law of the church but be wrong with God. Let me just share this with you. You'll never fake God out. You can't fake him out. Now you can fake me out. But you can't fake out God. And finally, there is the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law ordered religious life. And it was, according to the writers of old, the strict adherences for holy entry, ceremonial law. This was important for them. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not demeaning ceremonial law. Because there was something about the order and the practices of the ceremony that gave uh, respect and adherence, recognition, to the holy things of God. And I think that that's been diluted. Um, the catchphrase today is, come as you are. That, that's not how the Old Testament presented God. No, when Moses went, came to God, the Lord told him to take his shoes off because the place where he was standing was holy ground. In the Old Testament, God, you didn't just come as you are. You came careful. In fact, when the high priest walked in to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, his linens had to be cleaned. The ephod had to be right. His right earlobe was, had, had a touch of blood on it. Go look in your Bible. He didn't just come any way he wanted. When the veil was rent from top to bottom, the people still had honor and respect for God. They didn't lose that. They didn't lose that. But in this more modern age, where, where we, we went from acceptance to, to personalized theology, we think it doesn't matter how we come. We think it doesn't matter how we present ourselves. When in fact the Bible says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is just a reasonable service. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. You should treat your body, inward and outward, like it's a temple of the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> Amen. And the crowd went crazy. And the problem is, we don't, we're not respecting God's God's creation when we don't respect ourselves. 
So let me just share with you a little bit of moral law. Moral laws, this is the, this is the, the Hebrew term, and I, I, I didn't pronounce it correctly, so I'm just going to let it be on the screen. I think we have it, maybe. And, and it related to justice and judgment, and it was translated as ordinances most of the time. Mishpatin. Mishpatin. In fact, in some ways, I think the I-M would be an im. It was based upon God's holy nature. Uh, I'll, I'll get to this at some juncture, but the moral law of the Ten Commandments was not given by inspiration. No, no. It was written by God's own finger. It was written by God's hand. It wasn't inspired by men. So there's a difference in the Bible. See, almost all the Bible is, is inspired word of God. God spoke and men wrote. But not the Ten Commandments. This is actually written by God. Ooh. Now that doesn't mean that the rest of Scripture is less and less value. But if you, if you would want to do a little micromanaging of the Scripture, notice that these Ten Commandments are written by the finger of God. Now it's very interesting to me that we recognize the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which would have been Sunday, and so that is our Sabbath. That's, our, that's the day that we set aside for worship and praise, bringing our sacrifices and offerings to God. But we violated that. We, we have violated that. Now, you know, it used to not be a violation. In fact, even America knew that we were a Christian nation. When President Obama at the time got up and said, we are no longer a Christian nation, he was not making... He was not making a declaration. He was making an observation. And it was true. When I grew up, there were no sports activities at the public school on Wednesday nights. The gas stations would, would, would close down. The restaurants didn't even open up until after Sunday school because everybody went to church on Sunday morning. And Wednesday night was a typical Bible study in every little town, even the large towns. But now that, that's been done away with. And so if you go down through all of that, Ten Commandments, you'll say, well, you know, I don't lie. I didn't commit adultery. I, I didn't covet. And no, I didn't murder. Uh, yeah, but you know, I, the Sabbath thing, I don't really care about that too much. So we violate one of the ten all the time. Because our priorities are not around keeping all of the law. Uh-oh. So moral law... It, it, was, it was based upon God's holy nature, and it should have been enough for them. Remember, it always should have been enough for the people. But the people needed more than that. In fact, they devolved. Human government is not, it's, it's not an evolution of, 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 of good things. Human government is the end result of a lack of, of godly respect. Because we didn't have godly respect, we needed someone to, to, to put us in jail. So instead, we said, oh no, Samuel, I don't want you. We want a king. And Samuel said, listen, you would rather have God take me and God, it's enough. No, we want a king. And Samuel said, yes, I'll tell you what a king's going to do. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to, Subscript your sons. He's going to take your best of your land, your sheep, your oxen. He's going to take your, your property. He's going to tax you. And they said, yes, we want that. Because they, were, they had lost their moral compass. And the moral law had been devalued. The civil law pertaining to this culture. See, these laws, these civil laws, they, they, because, because the moral laws were not honored and respected, the civil laws were brought in to play. The ceremonial laws were called hukum or chuga. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but, I, but I, I've got a little thing on my computer that if I, can, if I type in the word and say pronounce, there's a bunch of pronunciations, so I practice in my office. Weird words in Hebrew. But it literally means the custom of the nation. These words are translated statutes. The ceremonial, there's, there's another law. It's, it's not just ceremonial, but provisional laws. They're called provisional laws, same thing. It was added 
the ceremonial law was added because there was transgressions or there were sins against the moral law. You see, it all began with the moral law. And, and it, it moved from there until finally the people were, were, were dotting the I's. They were, they were going through the laws, all the law and commandments. They were doing that, trying to do their best. And then they were leaving out other things. In fact, when the, when the young ruler came to Jesus said, and, 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 and said, or the, the Pharisees came and said, what, what's the highest law? They were trying to trap him. And Jesus said, well, upon two laws rest all, upon two commandments rest all the law of the prophets. That you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, strength, everything. And that you love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else rests upon that. Laws created. So from the inception of mankind, we have this law given. It was a command. There was a command from the start. There was laws, command, here are the boundaries. The, the, the Garden of Eden had a boundary. A boundary around it. The Garden of Eden was not the entirety of the earth. It was a garden. It had a fixed boundary. You were care for the garden. That was, that was the command. Here's the law. Don't eat of the tree that's in the middle. Here's Genesis 2 and 9. Out of the ground made the Lord grow every good tree, pleasant, good for food. Tree of life, however, it's in the midst of the garden. The tree of knowledge, good and evil. Verse 17 of Genesis 2. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of that. The day you eat, you're going to die. And there is the beginning, the law. It's, it's a boundary. Not only does the, does the garden have a boundary line, but there's a tree that has a boundary line. And the law is always the same. To do and not to do. When you violate the law, it costs you something. When you violate the law of God, the moral law, it costs you something. So there are certain laws that, that once Christ came and died, that we didn't have to observe. The ceremonial law did not have to be observed because of the death of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because he was the lamb. So you didn't have to go crucify or kill another lamb because Jesus Christ was the lamb. So the ceremonial law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Here's your scripture, Colossians 2.14. Blotting out the handwritten, handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. It was very hard for us. It took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of, of a holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So... We're, we're watching these laws that were, that, that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The ultimate law of the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but that was a ceremonial law. It did not exempt you from the moral law. And this is the problem with many churches because they're, they're telling you, well, it doesn't matter how you live because I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? If you, if you love the Lord, that means you adhere to the moral law that's found in the Scripture. He didn't wipe out the Ten Commandments. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. The laws consisting in ordinances typifying Christ's death. It was nailed to the cross. Ephesians 2.15 By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. Hebrews 10.1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers there unto perfect. It couldn't do it, but Jesus Christ did it. And he took your sin and he nailed it to the cross, but he did not remove your necessity of obedience because any religious practice comes through obedience. I'll, I'll give you the scripture of, of Matthew 22 and 36. I got ahead of myself. When, when, when they said, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, they're, they're really wanting him to divulge the law of Moses. They're wanting him to go back, maybe even specifically the Ten Commandments. Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love thy, the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything hangs on that. So if you don't get those two right, everything else is done. <laughs> so when I, when I talk about this, really, if, if, if you walked away and said, well, I wish he would have simplified it. Let me just simplify it. You can't live the way you want to live. You don't get to live any way you want to live. You don't get to do what you think is pleasurable to you. 
You open up this book, you get in the altar, and you say, Lord, how, do I, how should I live? I've talked about this before, but I'll just brief it, briefly tell you. You should have personal convictions that are not rarely spelled out in the Bible. If it's in the Bible, you don't need a conviction about the Bible. The Bible doesn't need your conviction. That means it doesn't need your validation. It's right or wrong, that's the Bible. But you should have your own convictions, things you will and will not do. Things you will and will not say. If you get married, you should never use the, the D word. Ever use the D word. If you get in a fight, don't ever use the D word. Ever. Don't ever say. Well, you want to get a divorce. That's the dumbest thing you've ever said in your life. Don't ever say that. Just say, do, do, do you... Do you want to have a food fight? Just something, but don't say the deed word. It's things you should and should not say, ever say. Because a, a word is like a bullet, and once you say it, you can never retrieve it. You shoot it out, you can never put it back in. Lines that you should not cross. Things you should not cross. Boundaries. You, there's got to be a law of your own mouth, a law of your eyes, a law of your spirit. There should even be a law of your acquaintances. Because some people drag you down. You know they drag you down. I, I, I want to get to the law of creation. And I'm, I'm going to get to, law, to the second law of obedience. I, I want to tell you about the law, uh, the Mosaic law. There was a moral law before the Mosaic law. We're going to talk about it. But, but I'm just, I just want to wrap up tonight and just say this. There, there, there has to be a constraint of your life that's not... Oh, oh, man. There has to be a constraint of your life not contingent upon this pulpit... If, if, if this pulpit is the only place that constrains you, you are in serious trouble. Whoever is standing here or me, we're going to leave something out that's, nece- that's necessary for your life. Well, they never talked about that. I guess it's okay. There are new things that are happening every day. And, 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 I, cannot, and I, I, I cannot always, I don't even know all the new stuff. I don't even know all of that. But there, you, you've got to have some walk with God to say I, I talk to the Lord and he constrains me Paul said it like this I've got to bring my body under subjection lest I myself think of Paul become a castaway how could Paul become a castaway because he had to constrain himself there had to be a law in his mind his body his language what he did and this is a day where you're going to have to have an internal personal law what you will and will not do the constraints of your life you ought not to, I'm not telling you to be arrogant, but you should not be embarrassed to say, you know what, I, I just can't go there. I just can't, I can't, I can't do that because, because I know that's my downfall. I can't, I'm sorry, I cannot watch that because that, that's not, that's not, I can't put that in my mind. I'm not trying to be offensive or, or better than anybody, but there's a law in me. I, I, I can't say that. Uh, someone wants to talk to you about someone else, but there's, there should be a law of constraint against gossip. Or hearing accuser of the brethren. And, and your brain's so messed up. I'll tell you why your brain's messed up. Because you treat your, your ear like a trash can. The reason why you're all conflicted is because you, you open your ears to all the trash. And they just people just dump stuff in. Have you ever seen a, have you ever seen a big dumpster somewhere? And a, a, a big roll-off somewhere on a street corner? And, and neighbors just come by and just put whatever they want to in it too. You know, you got it for yourself. You want to put your tree trunks in. You want to put your stuff in. But the neighbors just come by. They, they, dump, they dump their old mattresses in there. You, that wasn't your mattress. And everyone's looking at you saying, man, these, these people are slobs. Look at all the mattresses they threw away from their house. Why? Because you put a trash can out there, everyone wants to use the trash can. That's Brother Larry. People are, people are just dumping all their trash and stuff. That's, that's what we are because we have no boundary, we have no law, we have no protection. You've got to protect yourself. Hear me, everybody. I wish this was just for young people, but it's for everybody. Because everyone 40 or years or older are using Facebook, and there's a lot of trash on Facebook. And the younger people are using Instagram and some other stuff that I don't even know about. But I'm going to find out. <laughs> I'm almost done. Just, I'm, I'm, I'm a few minutes over. Just, just know that there has to, there, there's a law of God and there has to be a law in you. And you've got to constrain yourself. And you've got to make sure that you put a boundary. You house the Holy Spirit. And you should treat yourself as a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why there's some things that are appropriate and not appropriate. That's why when, even if I'm hungry, I'm not going to eat a pepperoni pizza while I'm preaching. It's inappropriate. 
It's inappropriate. It, it's, it, it's, it, people know it's inappropriate because there's a boundary line. There's a boundary about what you say, how you treat people, your language, how you treat your own self. There has to be a law, and you have got to work on it, and we, we've got to talk about it. Amen. All right. I left a whole bunch of stuff out. So, before you come and ask me what you should do, what you shouldn't do, just know I'm trying to figure it out too. Go to God and pray. Ask God. Before you buy that thing, go ask the Lord. Before you say those words, ask the Lord. Because we... We've got to live above the world. We've got to be spiritual and holy people. God's called us to be a holy people. I cannot be a holy man of God without some kind of boundary and constraint. Amen. All the people said amen. Please stand with me now. Father, thank you for your word. Let the seed be planted. And we're digging deep into your word, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would guide us, guide the church. Keep us in this world, Lord, the pressing of our world. I pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Everybody said amen. Amen. Love one another. God bless you. I'll see you on Sunday.